Section 4 of The Court and Character of King James, whereunto is now added The Court of King Charles, by Anthony Weldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Court of King James, Part 3 Now did those great managers of the state, of which Salisbury was chief, after they had packed the cards, begin to deal the government of the kingdom amongst themselves, and persuaded the king to leave the state affairs to them, and to betake himself to some country recreations, which they found him addicted unto, for the city and business did not agree with him. To that end purchased, built, and repaired at Newmarket and Royston, and this pleased the king's humour well, rather that he might enjoy his favourite with more privacy than that he loved the sports. Then must Theobald's be in his own possession, as not fit for a king to be beholding to a subject, for an house of daily use, but because the king had so much want of monies to express his love and bounty to his native nation, Salisbury would exchange and take land for his house and park, in which exchange he made such an advantage that he sold his house for fifty years' purchase, and that so cunningly as hardly to be discerned, but by a curious sight, for he fleeted off the cream of the king's manners in many counties, not only two lying in any one county, and made choice of the most in the remotest counties, only built his nest at Hatfield, within the county where his father had built his. Yet kept he still the house of Theobald's, for he and his posterity were to be perpetual keepers of that house, and many parks adjacent. By this he not only showed his wisdom for his own benefit, but to the world what the king's natural disposition was to be easily abused and would take counterfeit coin for current payment. And to fit the king's humour, and dissolve him in that delight he was most addicted to, as well as to serve Salisbury's own ends, and satisfy his revenge upon some neighbour gentleman, that formerly would not sell him some convenient parcels of land neighbouring on Theobald's, he puts the king on enlarging a park, walling and storing it with red deer. And I dare affirm, with that work the king was so well pleased, and did more glory in than his predecessors did in the conquest of France. And as it was most true, so an ill omen, that the king loved beasts better than men, and took more delight in them, and was more tender over the life of a stag than of a man, yet this was the weakness of his judgment and poorness of his spirit, rather than any innate cruelty. For he was not naturally cruel over lives, though in displacing officers, which naturally he did believe was as glorious as to overthrow and conquer kings. But yet, for all their setting their cards and playing their games to their own advantages, of getting much for themselves and friends, there was one knave in the pack would cross their designs and trump in their way, if he might not share with them in their winning. That was one lake, a clerk of the signet, after secretary, and after that turned out in disgrace, and in truth was only wise in the world's opinion, could swim being held up by the chin, but at his fall all his weaknesses were discovered, and that the world had been deceived in him, I will instance in one particular amongst many that shall give you full assurance. Being in disgrace, he gave two thousand pounds but to kiss the king's hand, believing that after that he might have access as formerly. After he had paid his money, he was never suffered to see the king more, only jeered at by all the court for his folly, and went sneaking up and down, contemned of all men. This lake was a fellow of mean birth and meaner breeding, 
being an under-servant to make fires in Secretary Walsingham's chamber, and there got some experience, which afterwards in the King's time made him appear an able man, which in the Queen's time, when there was none in court but men of eminences, made him an inconsiderable fellow. He had linked himself in with the Scottish nation, progging for suits, and helping them to fill their purses, as they did believe there was not so able a man in the kingdom, for in truth ever since Queen Elizabeth's death the raising money hath been the only way to raise men, as being held the essential property of a wise man, to know how to bring in money, per fas aut nefas, and amongst all the Scots he wholly applied himself to those of the bedchamber, and of nearest access to his majesty. For his good service of abusing his country and countrymen, he was made clerk of the signet, to wait on the king in his hunting journeys, and in these journeys got all the bills signed, even for the greatest lords, all packets being addressed to him, so that even Salisbury and Northampton and the greatest lords made court to him. By this means did he raise himself from a mean to a great fortune, but so overawed by his wife that if he did not what she commanded, she would beat him, and in truth his wife was afterwards his overthrow. Besides, he would tell tales, and let the king know the passages of court, and great men, as who was Salisbury's mistress, and governed all, who governed Northampton, and discovered their bordering which did infinitely please the king's humour, and in truth had so much craft as he served his turn upon all, but was engrossed by none but by the bedchamber, who stuck so close to him that they could not yet remove him. And now do the English factions, seeing they could not sever the Scots from him, endeavour to raise a mutiny against the Scots who were his supporters. Their agents divulging everywhere, the Scots would get all and would beggar the kingdom. The Scots on the other side complained to the king they were so poor they underwent the byword of beggarly Scots. To which the king returned this answer, as he had a very ready wit, Content yourselves. I will shortly make the English as beggarly as you, and so end that controversy. This is as true as he truly performed it. For however he enriched many in particular, as Salisbury, Suffolk, Northampton, Worcester, Lake, etc., yet he did beggar himself and the nation in general. This also was inculcated into the ears of the Parliament, when that great business about the Union was in debate, which was much crossed by that opinion. If they had already impoverished the kingdom, by the Union they would bankrupt it. But since, you see, by their own valour and bravery and of spirit, they have made us beg a reunion with them, and for aught we see, all our happiness is derived from their favours. They that then lived at court and were curious observers of every man's actions could have affirmed that Salisbury, Suffolk, and Northampton and their friends did get more than the whole nation of Scotland, Dunbar excepted. For whatever others got, they spent here. Only Dunbar laid a foundation of a great family which did all revert into England again with his daughter's marriage with the house of Suffolk. So, in truth, all the water run to their mills. It is most true that many Scots did get much, but not more with one hand than they spent with the other. Witness the Earl of Kelly, Annandale, etc. Nay, that great getter, the Earl of Carlisle, also, and some private gentlemen as Gideon Murray, John Achmoty, James Bailey, John Gibb, and Bernard Lindley, got some pretty estates, not worthy either the naming or envying, that old servants should get some moderate estates to leave to posterity. 
But these, and all the Scots in general, got scarce the tithe of those English getters that can be said did stick by them or their posterity. Besides, Salisbury had one trick to get the colonel and leave the Scots but the shell, yet cast all the envy on them. He would make them buy books of fee farms, some one hundred pounds per annum, some one hundred marks, and he would compound with them for a thousand pounds, which they were willing to embrace because they were sure to have them pass without any control or charge. And one thousand pounds appeared to them that never saw ten pounds before, an inexhaustible treasure. Then would Salisbury fill up this book with such prime land as should be worth ten or twenty thousand pounds, which was easy for him being treasurer so to do. And by this means Salisbury enriched himself infinitely, yet cast the envy on the Scots, in whose names these books appeared, and are still upon record to all posterity. Though Salisbury had the honey, they poor gentlemen but part of the wax. Dunbar only had his agents and could play his own game, which they does not cross. So was the poor king and state cheated on all hands. And now did a contention arise between the English and Scots about the election of a favourite, out of whether nation he should come. Now was Montgomery in the wane, being given more to his own pleasures than to observe the king, so that alway the Earl of Carlisle did invest him in his room. He as soon by his neglected carriage did divest himself. Yet was he ever in the king's good opinion, and one that he put more trust in at the time of his death than in all his other servants. Then was there a young gentleman, Master Robert Carr, who had his breeding in France, and was newly returned from travel, a gentleman very handsome and well-bred, and one that was observed to spend his time in serious studies, and did accompany himself with none but men of such eminences as by whom he might be better. This gentleman, the Scots, so wrought it that they got him into a groom's place of the bedchamber, and was very well-pleasing to all. He did more than any other associate himself with Sir Thomas Overbury, a man of excellent parts, but those made him proud, overvaluing himself and undervaluing others, and was infected with a kind of insolency. With this gentleman spent he most of his time, and drew the eyes of the court as well as the affection of his master upon him. Yet very few, but such as were the curious observers of those times, could discern the drawing of the king's affection until upon a coronation day riding in with the lord dingwell to the tilt-yard his horse fell with him and brake his leg he was instantly carried into master rider's house at charing cross and the news as instantly carried to the king having little desire to behold the triumph but much desire to have it ended and no sooner ended but the king went instantly to visit him and after by his daily visiting and warning over him taking all care for his speedy recovery made the day-break of his glory appear, every courtier now concluding him, actually a favourite. Lord, how the great men flocked then to see him, and to offer to his shrine in such abundance that the king was forced to lay a restraint, lest it might retard his recovery by spending his spirit. And to facilitate the cure, care was taken for a choice diet for himself, and chirurgeons with his attendants, and no sooner recovered but a proclaimed favourite. Then the English lords, who formerly coveted an English favourite, and to that end the Countess of Suffolk did look out choice young men whom she daily curled and perfuming their breaths, left all hope, and she her curling and perfuming, all adoring this rising sun, 
every man striving to invest himself into this man's favour, not sparing for bounty nor flattery. It was not hard to be obtained, being naturally more addicted to the English than to the Scotch, in so much that he endeavoured to forget his native country and his father's house, having none of note about him but English, and but one besides English in any familiarity with him, which was Sir Robert Carr's kinsman. But above all was Sir Thomas Overbury, his Pythias. Then was the strife between Salisbury and Suffolk, who should engross him and make him their monopoly, each presenting, proffering, and accumulating favours upon Overbury's kindred. The father made a judge in Wales, and himself offered offices. But Overbury, naturally of an insolent spirit, which was elevated by being so intimate with a favourite, and wholly having engrossed that commodity, which could not be retailed but by him and his favour, with a kind of scorn neglected their friendships, yet made use of both. Now was Carne knighted and made gentleman of the bedchamber, and Overbury's pride rose with the other's honours, still scorning the chapmen, as they did by their cheap offices under value so precious a commodity. Northampton, finding himself neglected by so mean a fellow, cast about another way, and followed Balaam's counsel by sending a Moabitish woman unto him, in which he made use of Coppinger, a gentleman, who had spent a fair fortune left by his ancestors, and now for maintenance was forced to lead the life of a serving man that formerly kept many to serve him, and as an addition the worst of that kind, a flat board. This gentleman had lived a scandalous life by keeping a whore of his own, which for the honour of her family I will not name, therefore was fittest to trade in that commodity for another and in truth was fit to take any impression baseness could stamp on him, as the sequel of this story will manifest. This Moabitish woman was a daughter of the Earl of Suffolk, married to a young noble gentleman, the Earl of Essex. This train took, and the first private meetings would Coppinger's house and himself bored to their lust, which put him into a far greater bravery for a time than when he was master of his own. But it had bitterness on all hands in the end. This privacy in their stolen pleasures made Coppinger a friend to Northampton and Suffolk, though but a servant to Viscount Rochester, for so now was he called, and now had they linked him so close as no breaking from them. Overbury was that John Baptist that reproved the Lord for the sin of using the lady and abusing the young Earl of Essex, would call her strumpet, her mother and brother boards, and used them with so much scorn, as in truth was not to be endured from a fellow of his rank to persons of that quality, how faulty soever otherwise they were. Then to satisfy Overbury and blot out the name of sin, his love led him into a more desperate way by a resolution to marry another man's wife. Against this then did Overbury bellow louder, and in it showed himself more like an affectionate than a discreet and moderate friend. Had he compounded but one dram of discretion with an ounce of affection, he might with such a receipt have preserved his own life and their fortunes and honours. For those that infinitely hated that family did as infinitely condemn his insolent carriage and behaviour towards them. So that had any of those brothers or name killed Overbury, either by picking a quarrel with him, or pistoling him, or any other desperate way, or bravely in a duel, upon some other ground of a quarrel than blemishing their sister, the world would have justified the action, however he had stood with God. But Buchanan's character of that family bars all expectation of so much bravery of spirit. 
but a council must be held to put him to death by some baser means. The plot then must be, he must be sent a leisure ambassador into France, which by obeying they should be rid of so great an eyesore. By disobeying he incurred the displeasure of his prince. A contempt that he could not expect less than imprisonment for, and by that means be sequestered from his friend. And thus far, I do believe, the Earl of Somerset, for so was he now created, was consenting. This stratagem took, and Overbury might truly say, video meliora deteriora sequo, for he indeed made the worst choice. It could not be thought, but such an employment was far above his desert, and much better for him to have accepted than to be confined to a loathsome prison. And for want of judgment, had his sufferings been less than loss of life, he had not been worthy of pity. But, Jupiter quos vulpere hostamentae, he would to the tower from whence he never returned, rather than accept of an honourable employment, from whence he might not only have returned, but done his friends acceptable service either in private or public. In his managing of this business, that wisdom of his, which formerly he had been esteemed for, suffered under the censure of wise men as well as fools. Having him now fast in prison, Herodias, by pleasing her Herod, must also ask and have his life. For per scalus at scalera tutior est via. To that end they preferred empoisoners to be servants to Sir Gervais Elwes, then lieutenant of the tower. The gentleman was ever held wise and honest, but unfortunate in having this place thrust upon him without his thought. He was also so religious that few in the court did equal him. So wise as he obtained the character of wise Sir Jervis Elwes, yet neither could his wisdom nor the opinion of his religion and honesty prevent that fate he was so ignorant of the plot, as he never did dream of any such matter, until one day, as it should seem, Weston being told Elwes did know wherefore he was preferred unto him to wait on Overbury, he asked the lieutenant one day before dinner whether he should now do it. Elwes asked him what? Weston, at that being somewhat abashed, Elwes espying it, presently said, No, not yet. For he did believe there was something known to Weston which was a secret to himself. Whereupon Elwes could not chew any meat, for chewing upon those words of Weston but instantly commanded his table to be voided, and thence he went into his study and sent for Weston to come under him, examining him of the meaning of that question. At last, by fair means and threatening together, got the truth. Then Elwes, as he well could, laid before Weston the horridness of the fact, the torments of hell, and the unassurance of his momentary enjoying of either reward or favour after the fact done, but that it must follow so many personages of honour would never cabinet such a secret in his breast that might ruin them, at last made him so sensible of his danger in this life, but more sensible of the torments in the other, that Weston, falling on his knees, said, O Lord, how good and gracious art thou, and thy mercy is above all thy works, for this day is salvation come to my soul, and I would not for all the world have had such a sin upon me giving the lieutenant humble thanks that had been the instrument of saving his soul by putting him off from so foul intentions. The lieutenant, having now thus renewed grace in him by making him, as he thought, a new man, said, Thou and I have a dangerous part to act, yet be honest and true to me, 
and I doubt not but with God's help we shall perform it well, both before God and the world. Weston faithfully promised him, and for a long time as faithfully performed with him. The lieutenant willed him to bring all such things as were sent in to give over Bury unto him, which he accordingly did. The lieutenant gave them to cats and dogs, which he ever had ready in his study for that purpose. Some died presently, some lay lingering a longer time. All the jellies and tarts sent to Overbury he cast into his privy, they disdaining the very dishes. This continued long, the earl often sending to visit Overbury, assuring him he did not forget his release, which would not be long deferred wherein most men did verily believe he meant both nobly and truly, though others conjectured his meaning was a dissolution. At last the Countess sent for Weston, reviling him and calling him treacherous villain, for had he given those things sent, Overbury had not been now alive, vowing she would be revenged on him, upon the very fear whereof he then gave those poisons after sent, without acquainting the lieutenant. Yet for all this schooling of Weston and his assurance given of his future fidelity to the Countess, she would not trust him single any more, but put another coadjutor to him, one Franklin, a very villain than Weston, and truly they themselves may be deemed very ill that could seek out such wicked instruments. These two villains, out of a desire to see the success of their hellish employment, coming shortly after it into Overbury's chamber, found him in infinite torment, with contention between the strength of nature and the working of the poison. And it being very like nature had gotten the better in that contention by the thrusting out of boils, botches, and blains, they fearing it might come to light, upon the judgment of physicians, that foul play had been offered him, consented to stifle him with the bedclothes, which accordingly was performed. And so ended he his miserable life, with the assurance of the conspirators that he died by poison, none thinking, much less knowing, otherwise, but these two murderers. End of section 4